The sermon text for this evening is in the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, first 12 verses. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, if we could turn back to the passage that Peter read, and we'll consider together verses... Nine to the end of verse 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, spanning Matthew 5 through 7, brings before us Jesus as the great teacher and Lord of his church. Yes, Jesus as Redeemer and Saviour underpins the Sermon on the Mount. But it's Jesus coming before us as the greater prophet than Moses, who shines most brightly in these chapters. And there's a reason that Jesus as teacher comes to the fore. In Matthew 4, Jesus had begun, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But that raises the question, what will it be like to live in the kingdom of God? And Jesus answers that question for us in the Sermon on the Mount. In his role as prophet, Jesus unfolds for us the lifestyle required of those who will live in his kingdom. And this is all so important because the focus, the light, the glory of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ as prophet. So often we can read Matthew 5 through 7 in a us-centered way. And that's perhaps understandable because there's so much 
of practical relevance in the Sermon on the Mount. But we must always read it first, Christologically, as the Sermon on the Mount reveals our Savior to us. And to press that a little further, if we come to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in an us-centered way, there's the great danger that all we are left with is guilt and despair. There's the danger that we see the standards of kingdom life and all that flows from that is a sense that we can never live up to this. We are guilty. And by ourselves, we try somehow to work up the strength to live the kingdom life. And if that is our approach to the Sermon on the Mount, all that follows is despair. But that isn't what the Sermon on the Mount is there to do. Rather, with the focus on Christ as prophet, it brings us out of ourselves to seek the grace of Jesus Christ himself. So that the one who sets before us kingdom life gives us the grace to live out that life. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us the glory of Christ as prophet and to take us to himself to find the grace to live out his prophetic instructions. And in the Sermon on the Mount, this great passage displaying the glory of Christ as prophet, the first thing we come to are the Beatitudes. But what are these Beatitudes? They are covenantal blessings. Blessings and cursings are covenantal concepts. They were embedded in the covenant with Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. There's that list of blessings followed by cursing. And in Matthew, here we have Jesus as the greater than Moses, giving us the blessings of the new covenant. And if you look at the somewhat parallel passage in Luke 6, there you see similar blessings followed by covenant curses. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall be hungry, and so on. And so the Beatitudes, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, don't focus on us. They focus on Jesus Christ as the one dispensing the blessings of the covenant. And that itself is such a wonderful thing just to pause and bask in the glory of. Jesus Christ came into this world to pronounce blessing on his people. In the new covenant, Jesus Christ comes to bless us. And that is what the Beatitudes Reflect the glory of Christ sovereignly blessing his people. The Beatitudes themselves form a lovely progression. The first three Beatitudes are effectively the blessings, the Beatitudes of self-emptying. The blessing of Christ rests upon those who before God are nothing. 
the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the blessing on those who are emptied of themselves. And then there might be the blessing of being filled. As Jesus has blessed his people in emptying them of self. So he goes on in verses 6 to 8 to speak of the blessings of filling. Righteousness, mercy, purity of heart. And then Jesus having blessed his people in emptying them. Having blessed his people in filling them with good things. Closes the Beatitudes by reflecting on how those who have been emptied and then filled relate to others. And so the Beatitudes close with what we might call the Beatitudes of relationships, verses 9 to 12. First, blessing, resting on believers' own relationships with others, that of peacemaking. And then blessing resting on believers whose relationship with a hostile world leads to suffering for righteousness' sake. There's a wonderful order and beauty in these blessings. The blessings of being emptied of self. The blessings of being filled. And then the blessings of how emptied and filled kingdom believers interact with others. And this evening we'll look at the last two of the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes of relationships. And it's obvious that kingdom life is going to affect how we relate with others and how others relate to us. And the final two Beatitudes show us the contrasting ups and downs of how kingdom life impacts relationships. The first shows what our attitude to relationships should be, that of peacemakers. And the second, sadly, shows us what the attitude, the relationship of the world to us will often be, that of persecutors. And we'll consider these in turn. First then, blessed are the peacemakers. And what is remarkable is how often in Scripture God's people are called to be peacemakers. Romans 4, so then let us pursue what makes for peace. 2 Corinthians 13, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Ephesians 4, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 1 Thessalonians 5, be at peace among yourselves. 2 Timothy 2, pursue peace. Hebrews 12, strive for peace. There is this profound emphasis in the New Testament on being peacemakers. And you know, it's because of this that our church membership vows that we heard this morning include a vow to be peacemakers. What is that third membership vow? Do you promise to submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and to seek always its purity and 
peace. Now, why is there this emphasis? Why so many exhortations to be peacemakers? Why the blessing on those who are peacemakers? Well, one reason is it does not come naturally to us. Consider Ephesians 4, the exhortation there for peace. What does Paul say? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the bond of peace. And what Paul is saying is that to be a peacemaker requires humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. In other words, to be a peacemaker requires the prior beatitudes and blessings of self-emptying. And these are not easy things. We are so prone to be full of ourself rather than self-emptied. And that is why there is this continual call, this continual reminder, be peacemakers. And it is so important that we heed both the Beatitude and the rest of the New Testament and that we are peacemakers. Proverbs 17 warns us, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. And if we lose peace, what that proverb tells us, if we fall into strife, it's so hard to contain it and to regain peace once it is lost. That's why Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine I have taught. Avoid them. Peacemaking is so important. Not only are we exhorted to be peacemakers because it's not what comes naturally to us, we're also exhorted to be peacemakers because that is God's own character. God frequently calls himself the God of peace. Romans 15, Philippians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, Hebrews 13. And God is the God of peace. Because he has sent the gospel into this world to to proclaim peace. So 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God is the one who brings about peace and reconciliation. And God is so intent on bringing about peace That he sent his son into this world to bring about peace. And so Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. His coming into the world proclaimed peace. Luke 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace and goodwill toward men. And we know God's character is peace because of what it cost him to bring peace into this world. How did Jesus Christ bring peace? Colossians 1. Through him to reconcile all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
It cost the Lord Jesus Christ his life blood to bring peace into this world, to be a peacemaker. That is how highly God values peace. But not only does God the Father proclaim himself to be peace, not only does God the Son shed his blood to bring peace, the Spirit delights to work in our hearts, making us peacemakers. Because what is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The Holy Spirit delights to make us peacemakers. The whole blessed Trinity are united as peacemakers. And so we are called to be peacemakers, to bear the image of our glorious God. And that's one of the reasons that this beatitude is phrased as it is. Peacemaking and adoption linked together. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers have that blessed family resemblance to God. And the wonderful thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ as our elder brother is praying for us that we would have that family resemblance as adopted sons in being peacemakers. John 17, I ask for those, those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Jesus is praying for us that we would be at peace with one another, that we would be peacemakers, having that peace and unity, resembling the peace and unity that there is amongst the persons of the Godhood themselves. And the reason that Jesus prays that we would have that family resemblance, that we would be peacemakers, is so, he says, that the world may believe that you sent me. So important is being peacemaking sons of the peacemaking God. That humanly speaking, if we are not peacemakers, the world will not believe in Jesus Christ. These are the very words of the Savior himself. Well, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There is no higher privilege that you or I can have than to be children of the living God. By nature, we are children of wrath, even as others. But as the great peacemaker, God has brought us into his family. And that moment, we believe, we cease to be under wrath and condemnation and become Romans 8. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And what a wonder it is to be a child of God. To know the love of God as Father. See what kind of love the Father 
has given to us that we should be called children of God. To know God's pity and care. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. To know every day the good gifts of the Father surrounding us. Matthew 7, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things? What a blessing it is to be able to draw near and say, Our Father in heaven. Because Romans 8, we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. What a covenantal blessing for the Lord Jesus Christ to bestow upon us that we should be peacemaking children of God. Now, in all this, of course, we aren't indifferent to truth. Jesus himself was the great peacemaker, turned over the tables in the temple when he saw wickedness. But it remains. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so, dear congregation, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. So, we are called to be peacemakers. But while that is our attitude, our disposition, it's a reality that not everyone will be happy to be at peace with us. And so we have another relationship described in the last beatitude. Not a relationship of peace, but a relationship of persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as tempting as it is, we can't pick and choose the Beatitudes. They stand together as a whole. We can't get the blessing of the nice Beatitudes of being peacemakers, that sounds a nice thing, without this final Beatitude, this final blessing also being true of us. And this final Beatitude reminds us, indeed it tells us, what life in a fallen world is like. As a self-emptied, Righteousness-filled believer. This beatitude tells us that in this world, if we live the kingdom life, John 16, you will have tribulation. And at first, that might seem a strange thing. What is there not to like about someone who is poor in spirit, who mourns over sin, who is meek, who is righteous, who is merciful, who is pure, who is a peacemaker. Who would not love that person? Well, where do we see that person? We see that person in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as Jesus himself says, John 15, the world hated me. Why? Why would the world hate Jesus Christ. John fifteen twenty two. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. 
but now they have no excuse for their sin. The world hated Jesus because he revealed the sin of the world. The light shone, revealing the darkness, but they did not turn to the light. Instead, they hated the light because their deeds were evil. And so Jesus tells us, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And what Jesus is saying is that if we are living faithful Christian lives, there will inevitably be a degree of persecution and we must be ready for it. If we are living in the world a kingdom life, a Christ-shaped life, life as a true disciple, there will be a reaction. As Peter tells us, 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. This beatitude and all of the New Testament tells us trials, persecution, testing will come. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, put it rather picturesquely. He said, before Israel get to the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, they must go through the wilderness of serpents and a Red Sea. So the children of God, in their journey to the holy land of heaven, must meet with fiery serpents and a Red Sea of persecution. We will not be the first or the last Christians to suffer. Even as Jesus reminds us in this beatitude, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this beatitude outlines two different kinds of suffering. Verse 10 talks of persecution. Verse 11 talks, in addition, of being reviled, of people uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely. And persecution perhaps is more physical, more direct. The kind of suffering that believers in Pakistan or North Korea or Iran are enduring today. Beatings, loss of freedom, even death. But Jesus here also talks of being reviled, of being mocked. Jesus was mocked on the cross by the two criminals on either side of him. Verbal laughing at. And while it's unlikely we know anything of persecution in the physical sense, it's quite likely that most of us know something of being reviled, of being mocked. What do you mean? You believe in heaven and hell? You believe in traditional sexual ethics? You believe that Jesus is God? Articulate any of these things and you will be mocked and reviled. And just like we have here, if we say these things, we may also be slandered. 
Men may utter all kinds of evil against us falsely. What are gospel preachers so often called today? Preachers of hate. They are preaching peace. They are peacemakers. But all kinds of evil falsely are spoken against them. Preaching hate. Now, of course, it's possible to be reviled and slandered because we behave obnoxiously. And that isn't, of course, what Jesus is talking about here. He's clear that he's pronouncing covenantal blessing on those who are suffering for righteousness' sake, verse 10, or on my account, verse 11. But what Jesus is saying is that when we suffer for good and godly reasons, we should be comforted. Jesus never hides how difficult it is to live out the kingdom life, how it will impact some relationships badly. Jesus does comfort us. He says, when you are persecuted, when you are reviled, my covenantal blessing rests upon you. Know that when this happens, yours is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of the world might be persecuting you, Jesus says. But know you are citizens of a greater kingdom. As Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation." But take heart, I have overcome the world. And it's because he understood that, that Moses endured suffering in Egypt rather than living the life of a prince. What does Hebrews 11 tell us? By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? He considered the reproach of Christ of greater reward than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He knew that whatever the kingdom of this world did to him, he was blessed because he was a citizen of a greater kingdom. And it's the same for us. Whatever persecution and mockery and ridicule comes our way, we are infinitely blessed because ours is the kingdom of heaven. And as we think of that kingdom of heaven, we can even now rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus says here that we can rejoice in suffering. How can that be? Well, because the blessedness that Jesus pronounces upon us is so great in comparison to anything we are going through. 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Consider the covenantal blessing that awaits you in Christ's kingdom. What is the covenantal blessing? You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will be called children of God. With these blessings resting upon our heads, 
Jesus says, everything else in this world is a light, momentary affliction. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And if we sink our lives more deeply into the teaching that Christ, as our prophet, gives us here, if the privileges Christ as our new covenant head dispenses upon us, lodge in our hearts. Then all of the persecution and reviling and evil speaking of this world will become a light, momentary affliction. So these two beatitudes of relationships, peacemaking and persecution. Well, may the Lord who stands before us as the great prophet of his people enable us to live out lives as peacemakers, enduring whatever persecution comes our way, looking to him and realizing that great is our reward in heaven, that that eternal weight of glory is ours in him. Amen.